Tanse, Sego, Ani Buju, Queen Indeluizi Pampometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and our laws and our nation. And today, I want to talk about the subject of reconciliation with my good friend and super warrior, Dr. Negon Sinclair. He's an associate prof at the University of Manitoba in Native Studies, but he's also my favorite columnist at the Winnipeg Free Press. And in fact, this guy is so good, he is the sole reason why I bought a subscription just to read his articles because his laser sharp focus on native issues is how I gauge where I am on native issues. And this guy's like super phenomenal and he must be able to manipulate time or something because in addition to teaching and research and being a media commentator and a public speaker, he also writes books and finds time to work at the grassroots level and was super active during the Idle No More movement. And it's why I asked him to come on this show and talk about reconciliation in, you know, in an institutional context and just in, in a general context, because he is not only a warrior, but he's also grounded in his culture. And I thought he'd be the perfect person for all of my listeners. Welcome to the show, Negan. <laughs> Bullshit, Pam. I can't believe you <laughs> called me a super warrior. <laughs> <laughs> you totally are. Considering I, uh, I, I have trouble, uh, you know, anybody knows I'm not a violent person at all. So, <laughs> like, it would be like, I wonder myself if I ever did have to go in, into conflict, what it, that would be like. But, hey, if uh, put me in front of a buffet, I'm good. <laughs> we just need to get you some more camo and you'll just look the part, too. <laughs> so, look, why don't we start off? I mean, I'm sure there may be one or two people in the world who don't know who you are. So why don't you talk about them? Who are you and who are your people? Okay, uh, so I'll say bonjour and dedeme magadaduk. Hello, everybody. Nigan webedem nindijna kas namigoshendo dem animenwendem omayayin. It's a pleasure to be here, and my name is Nigan Sinclair. That's the short form of Nigan webedem, and Nigan webedem means the the sound in the front or the sound of the future is what it what it means. And uh, I'm Nishnabe from a little community called Little Peguis. Uh, it's part of Peguis First Nation. It's the original site of Peguis First Nation in southern Manitoba. You won't find our community on a map because in uh, 1907 our community was forcibly removed uh, by gunpoint through an illegal unjust removal and uh, put to what Pe what's now Peguis First Nation. But my family stayed behind and then the town of Selkirk literally grew up around our community. And so I grew up in Selkirk and uh, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Manitoba. Um, I'm, I'm a Medewin person, so I'm a part of the Three Fire Society, and I've been going to the lodge since I've been very, very young, and uh, you know, been that's a big, really big part of my life. And I would say that the only reason I'm able to do the work that I do is uh, because of my time in the lodge, and my time at ceremony. And then now I'm a professor at the University of Manitoba. I was the former department head of the Department of Native Studies over here in University of Manitoba, but right now I'm I'm on sabbatical this year. So I'm working on the Winnipeg Free Press as a columnist, and uh, really that's a dream come true for me because as a kid growing up in Manitoba, you uh, you always had a copy of the Winnipeg Free Press kind of on your kitchen table, and so you walk out, uh, you know, before the internet, of course, that would be your only place you'd, you'd hear about our community, 
And of course, growing up, you'd only see Indigenous peoples as on the Manitoba's Most Wanted page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the only person I ever saw was my father. My father is Senator Murray Sinclair, and he'd be, he'd be, you know, a, he was first a lawyer, and then he was a judge, and he did the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry. So my dad kind of were, was one of the early people in our community, along with people like Phil Fontaine and Ovid McCurdy and Marion Mead Moore and Myra Laramie. Anyways, a lot of people in our community who all of whom are broke the mold of what Indigenous peoples are in the 1980s and 90s. And, and now I'm writing for the, the very venue that I kind of watched change over my life. And it's a real honor to do that. Uh, it's really changed my life. And I, I want to c- continue even past my sabbatical being over. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's an incredible transition in a relatively short period of time because, uh, I mean, I grew up the same way. If we ever saw any Native issues in any newspaper, it was always something bad. So, like, how did you actually end up at the Winnipeg Free Press? Was it because of um, the work you did writing op-eds in other newspapers or speaking in the media? Like, how did that come about? I. Uh- you know, everything really shifted for me during I don't know more. Um, I can remember the moment when I realized we were in a era of change or some some era of growth, anyways. And it was uh, during the really early stages of I don't know more. I saw on YouTube or on my Facebook page uh, the Round Dance in Saskatoon at the mm-hmm. mall on December seventeenth, uh, and that shifted my consciousness. It really shifted my, 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 I realized something was happening in a really uh, impactful way. And for many of us, of course, we got, we were already involved with community gatherings, but they're often small and kind of scattered and had very little focus. But I, I don't know more really focused all of us in one direction. And so we began to organize right here in Winnipeg and, and we had a, a huge gathering at Polo Park and Portage Place, about 7,000 people that day. Uh, in the two round dances that we did uh, on December 21st. And then, you know, then things started to happen. Then we needed a, an organizational group. We had about 25 of us. And then pretty soon as we began to go into January, some real kickback and reactions in the community was taking place. And one of the one of the reactions that took place was a small newspaper in Southern Manitoba called the Morris Mirror. Very small, you know, uh, Bible Belt community in, in Morris, Manitoba. Um, they, uh, this editor put out this editorial saying Indigenous peoples were acting like terrorists in their own country <laughs> and said a bunch of other terrible things. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I've always grown up understanding treaty. Like I've always, you know, my whole life has been really treaty. And uh, when I was in the lodge in the 1980s, I remember everyone talking about treaties. So I spent a lot of time studying, thinking, writing, uh, you know, doing ceremonies about treaty. But on this very... <laughs> ironic moment of this guy who lived in a town named after Alexander Morris, who negotiated treaties three through 11 and renegotiated treaties one and two. Literally, he's standing in the town where he's benefiting from treaty and then yet totally do damaging or leaving, living contravening uh, and perpetrating violence antithetical to treaty. And I thought, what a weird moment. And so what I did was, is I offered... I tried speaking the language of what he would offer, but I also wanted to operate in a treaty way, which was to offer a gift. And so I traveled out to his to his office, and uh, it was one of those minus 50 days here in Manitoba, and um, and I waited for him and uh, with a cup of coffee and a, a donut. Now, of course, it's by this point, 
a social media got a hold of this and there was six media trucks driving out to Morris to watch this conference, <laughs> which they wanted to watch a fight take place. But what happened was, is absolutely opposite to that. The mayor of Morris was there to greet me. We had coffee. I went to over to his house. Uh, I was invited by the local owner of the subway to come and visit with the staff, which is right beside the Morris Mirror. And it was really, I was really thankful for that because it was minus 50. And I had all of these different members of the Morris community walk by and stand with me and visit with me in front of the Morris Mirror offices. And then I had the town council invite me to come and spend the afternoon with them. <laughs> and then next thing you know, I'm speaking at the high school in the afternoon. And then I'm speaking at the library. You know, I met you know, easily several hundred people that day. Now, of course, none of them was the editor of the Morris Mirror, but <laughs> he, uh, uh, I mean, he certainly had watched me <laughs> standing in front of his office because he said a number of things later on social media that I was stalking him and so on. No, stalking him would have went to his, his to, I would have went to his house. Yeah. No, I stood in front of his workplace with a gift and I wasn't in, I really didn't even know what I was going to say. I was just going to say, here's a gift and, you know, let's, have a conversation. And so what happened out of that was um, I wrote a letter, which I then printed and then posted on his door that afternoon before I went back with very cold hands, frozen fingers. And after many different people spoken to media, talked to and so on. And I taped a letter onto his door uh, saying things like when you're ready to have a conversation and when you're ready to talk treaty or when you're ready to have a discussion about what it's like to share territory instead of calling each other's names. How can we be adults really and be peoples who are going to share this land together, not for us really, but for our children. And what have we inherited throughout this divisive generation in Canada has been name calling and land theft and, and violence against each other manifested in his very editorial, but how can we stand up together? So uh, what happened out of that was the free press asked me to, uh, to publish that letter. And so I, I agreed to do that. And it was the most read uh, piece in this uh, 2012. Wow. And, and uh, 3,500 reads in 24 hours. And so, which is a pretty large amount for, for the Winnipeg Free Press site. Normally a, a piece is read anywhere between 500 to 1,000 times. The only kind of people that, the only kind of stories that get that kind of readership is like the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. <laughs> oh, right, right. Jets, right? And so when I was up there with the Jets, I, th I think they had known that this was something different. And they also, I think the Free Press saw the writing on the wall in terms of their representation of Indigenous peoples as well. And they began to ask me to write for them. And to make a long story, I suppose even longer, is mm -hmm. after a number of years of writing for them, then eventually uh, an editorial uh, columnist named Gordon Sinclair retired and uh, that opened up a space to be the city columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and and the city columnist is the uh, the most prestigious position at the Free Press because it's supposed to be about the city about like looking at the different elements of the city uh, it's a little different than like Dan Lett who's the political commentary uh, person or um, Jen Zerati, who's like the arts and also uh, culture kind of commentary. Uh, my job is to comment on the issues involving the city, which necessarily involves Indigenous peoples at all times. And so I'd say, you know, 90% of my pieces are about Indigenous issues. And, uh, but, you know, I've, I've received so much support by being there. I, the other day I, I, I wrote a traditional ceremony story about what springtime means in the Anishinaabe world. 
at the same time, I also wrote uh, about Trudeau <laughs> the day before. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the Free Press has been a venue in which I've been able to find a whole different set of ideas and spaces to argue things like colonialism, but then also argue things like cultural revitalization. Yeah, which that's one of the things I love most about how you are engaging in this column, because for me, you know, it's there's got to be a balance between decolonization and revitalization. Otherwise, all of our focus, you know, is always on the negative and we don't have any room for building or it's it's, you know, trying to build without addressing the problems and and that's what I like I mean some of your columns are are really uplifting but I noticed you know there there were a couple pretty edgy columns where I'm sure that you've had to have some blowback especially the ones around the the burial sites in Winnipeg can you talk a little bit about like how how you address that Yes, yeah, so, so the um, the burial site story is the one about uh, actually Brandon, which is at the city just west of um, of Winnipeg. And what's what's happened, of course, is that the uh, the city of Brandon had a residential school within the city limits. Uh, it was at the se- the site of a city park, which they sold the park, as most governments do, and then of course didn't tell the land developers to protect the site. And what they did is they changed the name of the cemetery site right beside the residential school. The former residential school, uh, from cemetery to uh, memor- um, memorial, <laughs> and because they changed the name to memorial, the developer thought, "Oh, this is just a memorial; it doesn't really matter." And so, <laughs> uh, for one reason or another, the site got removed. The memorial site got removed, and then he built an RV park literally on top of the oh. uh, grave sites of children. And that's created. That's a really ugly situation created, really, out of just neglect and not mm-hmm. seeing Indigenous peoples as human beings. And uh, one of the reactions that's happened is, <laughs> like, there's a lot of people angry about that situation, but they also do not want that in the public. They don't want the public to know. But that is a exact issue. That's the exact issue of how we get to that mess is because the public doesn't know, and because. Governments aren't aren't aware or responsible in which their treatment of indigenous peoples, and so when I wrote about it, and I was one of God, you know, there's a dozen people who wrote about that story, but because I wrote about it um, in the Winnipeg Free Press, which is of course much, you know the most read newspaper in Manitoba, um, the Brandon Sun took out a full page ad, uh, a full page of editorials, a story, plus the mayor of Brandon, everybody, you know, full blown attack on me. <laughs> because uh, I was some because I exposed this to the public, <laughs> like exposing it to the public. Like if I'm the problem in that story, yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But see what I mean? That's why I call you a warrior because you may not want the conflict, but it seems to come to you. Well, yeah, I yeah, I, well, I I think part of what and it might be my own fault sometimes, but um, it's because I've. I try to make everything into a narrative, into a story. So um, I don't just talk about the conflict as being mm-hmm. with black and white, but I say, here's all the players. Here's the context of how the story came to be. And then here's the here's the potential outcome out of it. And um, if anything, I get accused of, uh, of telling too much of stories. And but, you, but isn't that like the whole purpose of truth and reconciliation is actually we should just lay all the cards on the table so that, you know, we're all at the same place? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about that makes me probably the most upset is I, I wrote one line 
in a piece that I, uh, the, what it ended up getting me the job at the Winnipeg Free Press is I wrote two columns. Uh, one was, both was asked by the Free Press. One was on uh, the not guilty verdict in Raymond Cormier for the murder of Tina Fontaine. Mm-hmm. The second one was the not guilty verdict of Gerald Stanley in the Colton Bushy murder. And I wrote two columns then. And what I said in both those pieces, I really feel those are partner pieces. Um, but what I said in the, in, teen, in the piece about Tina Fontaine was the country failed Tina Fontaine. 150 years led to that moment. And this is a Manitoba-made situation. And so, therefore, every single person in our community not only inherits it, but now inherits the situation of what do we do now about it. What do we do that Raymond Cormier is walking the streets? What do we do with the fact nobody's ever been found guilty? What do we do with the fact that, you know, Indigenous women, particularly young girls, face violence on our streets every single day? And how do we inherit that? And how do we do something about it? How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? And so people got so angry at the idea that I was saying that they're not just uh, culpable, but now they have to do something about it. And they say things like, I don't know any Indigenous people's uh, I, this has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. I never took away people's land. <laughs> and land theft has everything to do with what happened to Tina Fontaine. And connecting those dots can really startle people and, and really make them very upset. Um, you cannot separate the murder of Colton Bushy from uh, the removal of Indigenous peoples onto reserves, uh, which manifests itself, which ends up in the confrontation between Colton and Gerald Stanley. Uh, you cannot separate the situation of land th- land theft out of that situation. And for to connect that for people, people I think um, generally don't like that because they're not used to um, understanding their role in these outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what you were doing and and other indigenous authors is, you know, reflecting back on society what has happened and i think there's probably no more uncomfortable spot for um canadians than to see themselves and their history and their present and their role in it reflected back at them and i mean you know your work around you know what happened to tina fontaine and colton bushy and and all of it you know the burial sites that's a reflection back of of where we are and its truth and i think people would much prefer to see reconciliation as a okay let's just start from here forward and we're all good and we'll just you know things will be fine without realizing that this is so not historical it's 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 in the contemporary that we're still dealing with these issues yeah the the, the best analogy that i've ever uh, sort of used is uh, if you look at the Olympics, for example, right? So the Olympics are held mm-hmm. in Vancouver. And, um, everybody loves the Inukshuk logo for the Olympics. But yeah. don't talk about the fact that, A, Inuit people never consented. Uh, and also, I mean, that's a, an appropriated image. Uh, and then also painted in a completely disrespectful way. Uh, then on top of that, Vancouver's on stolen land. So, like... Like we want to talk about indigenous peoples as ornaments, but not when we actually talk about relationships, you know, and we don't actually want to talk about what's actually happening in Vancouver. We just want people to sort of see the front, um, I guess that we would call it a, um, um, the shiny stuff. We we want to see the happy stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We want the veneer of reconciliation, but not the actual work. 
Yeah. Well, and, you know, one of your other articles, I'm sure probably, you know, caused even more controversy than the the ones we've already talked about, because it's, there are certain issues in society that are almost untouchable. And, and one of those is the, you know, the institution of policing and, you know, that, you know, police are heroes and they enforce the law and they keep order and they keep us all safe. And, and to, you know, even make the remotest suggestion that in every institution there can be problems like policing. I'm wondering, like, what made you write about that issue? Um, And, and how was the response to it? Well, I've written about policing a number of times. One is about uh, training of police officers and how, uh, I th- you know, something you've often said too, uh, cultural awareness training, you know, learning about dream catchers and it mm-hmm. uh, d- does not reduce violence. <laughs> it doesn't reduce anything. Uh, or learning about uh, a cultural song or two does not stop people from bringing their stereotypes to a crime scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the story that I most recently wrote that probably had the biggest uh, waves was the situation at Opasquiac Cree Nation involving an elder who had her home broken into on Christmas Eve. And uh, what happened was, is that she, uh, she of course, had heard, someone had phoned her Christmas morning and said, hey, uh, I just bought your computer. <laughs> and, uh, oh, what no! And showed up at her house. And, for, and said, oh, I need to get rid of this computer to buy some Christmas presents for people and and blah, blah. And so she kind of feeling weird, bought the computer off the young man for a hundred bucks or whatever, opened up the computer and boom, it was this elder <laughs> who had had her house broken into the night before. And uh, everybody on the reserve, of course, knew who had done it because you could trace it back to who this young man got the computer off of and so on and so forth. So to make a, a long story you know, short, I, as short as I can make it, um, the elder, of course, returned back to her community, knew exactly where all of her stolen goods were, went to the police officers and said, hey, all of my stuff, my stolen stuff is in uh, this guy's house and he lives with his mom. And they said, well, how do you know that? She said, I went to the front door and I visited with his, with her his mother and my TV was in the kitchen. <laughs> And, oh my goodness. And so she she said I don't want to, you know, disturb evidence here, but I mean literally my TV is in her kitchen. Go and collect that evidence or, you know, the proof of him breaking into my home is right there. Because of course, you know, break-ins are you know, what police officers often say is it's impossible to figure out who it is and so even though everybody in the reserve knew who it was. <laughs> and so she said there's the evidence right there that that he stole my he broke into my house, stole my TV and he has all these other things probably in his back bedroom. And what the police officer said to him Said to her, she, he said, well, go get your own stuff. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely insane. And you would never, ever say that to a non-Indigenous person. You would ever. never, ever say to a non-Indigenous elder, a 70-year-old woman, go get your own stuff from that criminal's house. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, that's that's absolutely incredible. So so I wrote about this, of course, and I wrote about this for a number of reasons. One is um, uh, the woman that's in question is my daughter's grandmother. So uh, you know I have a personal investment in the story too. But but I really I would have done it either way, whether it had been just some random person or if it had been uh, um, Doris. Anyways, so uh, what happened out of that story was a massive overhaul of the police station on Opasquia Cree Nation. Uh, officers were penalized uh, 
Um, I got a phone call from the head of RCMP of Manitoba uh, personally apologizing to me. I said, you don't need to apologize to me. Apologize to Doris, yeah. uh, you know. And, of yeah. course, she got an apology not just from the head of RCMP of Manitoba, but also from those specific officers. But then some other interesting things started to happen. Uh, so there was a number of things that sh- changed and shifted. So uh, she had been demanding an investigation on this um, uh, reaction. Uh, but what happened was the officer said, well, do you want an investigation? We'll give you an investigation. And so they proceeded to cut her out of her own house and then endlessly sort of uh, rain down requests upon her, demand all this paperwork, never-ending amounts of paperwork for, for the investigation to take place. So, I mean, they got her back. But... Uh, wow. At the end of the day, what happened was is some real substantial change on the police, the policing up in uh, Pasqua Cree Nation. And so while it, it still remains a, a divisive situation, there continues to be, for instance, chief and council up in Pasqua got involved and, and uh, a, a number of things happened with uh, discussions over how the policing can be done more respectfully and more appropriately. Well, that that's a real service to our people, though, because when you think, imagine how many times that's happened, not just at OCN, but in so many other places, and there's no mechanism, their voices aren't recognized, there's no one to file a complaint to except for the same offending police officers who are not going to investigate and find themselves to have done any wrongdoing, and it's just... It's like it's a real symbol, that story of under policing when, you know, crime's been committed and, and you're lucky enough to ha- to know who and the and the evidence and to just say, well, go take care of it yourself. I mean, what a horrible attitude. But to know that something came of it, that's that shows the service or the value of indigenous voices in the media can actually affect social change. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're. Uh, there's a hundred other examples that I think many other journalists can tell you about um, situations they've dealt with because we show light on situations involving conflict and historical conflict. Not just the historical conflict gets mediated or engaged, but also trust is rebuilt because then both the institution and the people themselves the people themselves feel heard. The institution is enacted uh, to know that, A, they have to be more responsible, but also that if they act inappropriately, something is going to happen. And then out of the out of all of that, then trust is built. Uh, there's a sense of trust that this institution will act on your behalf, and whereas before there would have been no penalization for someone acting inappropriately. So there is uh, there's hope there, and the media plays a pivotal role in that. So, you know, in the same vein, um, I mean, this story was really about under policing and, and making the required changes to make sure that we get the same benefit of, of that kind of protection. But one of your articles, uh, I think it was called Police Chief Danny Smythe Can Help Stop the Bleeding, was about the reverse phenomena of the over-policing and the the over-incarceration, the over-arrest, the... You know, um, the fact that more Native people are shot by police than any other group. I mean, that that article, you know, which in a very fair way spoke to the issue and the opportunity to actually do something about it. I mean, certainly that must have gotten a lot of controversy. Yeah. (laughs) Chief Smythe is uh, very aware of me these days. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good thing. Well, I mean... 
that story was a, a part of a long series of stories with the investigative journalist that we have at the Free Press School, uh, Dylan Robertson, who, who uh, did this incredible investigation of the Winnipeg City Police and, and over a series of months uh, over the, um, the oversight body to the Winnipeg Police Service. So when, whenever there's a, um, and, you know, RCMP for that matter too, is, is when situations involving citizens complaining about police officers, what happens from those, how are those handled, those, those complaints? And what he found, of course, was that the situation is um, very problematic. Uh, complaints never go beyond this one person, this group of small group of people, and therefore no, no complaints really go anywhere. And of course, in Manitoba here, the situation involving Indigenous peoples and the police inevitably played into that because uh, we are incarcerated you know, to the tune of four or five, up to seven times more if you are an Indigenous woman or an Indigenous young person. Uh, so the situation involving policing here in Winnipeg is is a very divisive one. And that story that I wrote was really calling on the commissioner of the city of police because, you know, uh, Chief Smythe, Chief Danny Smythe here in Winnipeg has a kind of legendary status as being the one police officer during the shooting of J.J. Harper um, in the late 1980s that did the right thing, that refused to cover up, that refused to not speak out about what he witnessed involving the manipulation of the crime scene, the hiding of evidence, uh, the kind of collaboration amongst police officers to get the story straight. Uh, and so Chief Smythe uh, was only a very junior officer in those days, and he did the right thing then. And the right thing was, was do your job properly. <laughs> Even it's, it's a radical idea, but <laughs> <Yeah>. ethically, <laughs> and which we want police officers to do. Uh, and so he acted appropriately then. And in this situation, um, what had happened was, is Chief Smythe started to circulate memos uh, attacking our journalist for exposing what was frankly a fraught system of uh officers or past officers covering up for present officers, which is what the oversight board does, um, what the, the stories that it un unveiled. And so uh, what the story that I wrote was the right thing to do here is to set up an independent body with citizens, maybe some former police officers, but generally people who have the public's interest in mind, not specific police officers in mind to oversee the body of police. That is what the right thing is to do. And indigenous voices must be on that committee. Why? Because we are incarcerated, we are uh, over, over policed, we are uh, under-resourced and have specific uh, situations that indigenous peoples are the only ones to deal with in the city of Winnipeg and also in the province of Manitoba and that have been created out of history, and no one knows that history more than Indigenous peoples. Therefore, they have to be a critical voice on that committee, especially when it involves an assaulting of a citizen by an officer, for example, or whether it be a situation involving um, uh, uh, organized crime, or whether it be a situation for a uh, domestic assault of a wife, for example. Indigenous peoples must be at that table because we bring specific historical experiences that are crucial for that kind of outcome or for that kind of committee. Yeah, well, and and here's the thing, like, so that article to me is really 
a great example of of what reconciliation and the treaty relationship should be about, even though it's difficult and uncomfortable and, you know, shines a light on some truth that people don't want to know, because this isn't just an Indigenous issue. So if your article, in combination with the, you know, the articles of your colleague, bring to light a problem and, and you know, add to the pressure to fix the problem, that's actually in everyone's best interest if both, you know, um, complaints can be dealt with from an Indigenous side, but also the public side. And I think that's, you know, that's where what the work that you're doing there, uh, it's it's reconciliation for everybody. Yeah, like I want, I want the police service to be um, the best possible uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. to be the best possible uh, body for everybody. And uh, I knew I'd gotten that fact wrong, so I just wanted to clarify. It's actually Ryan Thorpe that was our investigative reporter. So it wasn't Dylan Robinson. Dylan Robinson's our Ottawa reporter, so I just checked on that. So oh, okay. uh, Ryan Thorpe, uh, who, you know, I've only worked with for a short period of time. So, But, um, you know, making a better police service is the responsibility of everybody. And Indigenous peoples, uh, we must be at the table for mm-hmm because we have been not at the table for so long, not even in the room, not even in the building. <laughs> just in the prison cells. Just in the, that's right, just in the <laughs> Well, when you think about it, I mean, we couldn't get so further removed from having a say. And our because our issues, you know, related to policing and, you know, violence and over-incarceration and all of that is so... It's so bad that it it can actually be um, the mission for justice that actually helps make it better for everybody else. Because, you know, it's it's not just Indigenous people across the country that suffer. We also have, you know, Black Lives Matter who, you know, campaign for social justice for for Black people that are also... Uh, victims of police violence and over incarceration and things like that and then just for people in society in general who who have been wronged by the police and to make that system better actually makes us all safer if we have a police force we can work with and trust in and and vice versa for them that would make their job so much easier yeah I, I and you know I'm this isn't something where you point to somebody and then ought to also realize that there's something bigger at work too. So what I write in the piece is I say, uh, police officers inherit this 150 years. Uh, have we trained them adequately to be able to walk up to a scene and understand what they see? Because what they're seeing is 150 years. They're not seeing just this conflict between two people or three mm-hmm. people or whatever. Are they adequately trained to understand that a system has created poverty Poverty results in people making difficult decisions. Uh, those difficult decisions lead to outcomes. And that awareness of that system and that, his- that history that's on that site before they even walk up to the scene is critical. And police, it's not the... Um, it's not the fault of police officers when they walk up to that situation, but they, it is what something they inherit and they, they, they've inherited through being a part of the RCMP who have been a part of creating this system of poverty and, and control of indigenous peoples. And so when you walk up, what I say about police officers is I say, when you're an indigenous person, I don't care if you're a person who's on the street or if you're a person who has a PhD, when an indigenous person meets a police officer, your first thought is not this person's here to help me. Your first thought is, Oh, what trouble am I in? Yeah. And as someone who's been stopped so many times, uh, having resembled a suspect, (laughs) 
uh, I know firsthand that it really doesn't matter if I have a PhD at the, at the side of a road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All well, yeah, and, and that's the that's the whole thing. So it kind of like, it, it personally impacts you, but even if it didn't as an individual, I mean, we, we can't be extricated from our individual circumstances. So, you know, some people think, oh, well, you guys are okay because you have a good job, you work at a university, but that doesn't stop any of these systems from impacting us individually, but also our families and the billions of cousins that we have, all of those negative things that happen to our families and our communities, our clans, our houses, our our nations, impact us as individuals too. You, you know, I really learned that situation from my father. My father was, of course, the head of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in Manitoba here. And he talked to, you know, I, I can remember my father uh, going up to court and I would travel up north with him to reserves. And he, of course, he'd be the only Indigenous person in the room. It'd be basically my father and then whoever was accused. <laughs> Those are the two Indigenous peoples. The, the judge was white, the crown prosecutor was white, all the bailiffs were white. I mean, it was just all the RCMP officers were white. And the only people in the room were basically that were Indigenous was my dad, the lawyer, and then the accused. And so there would be, oh, geez. At one time, I remember being up, I think it was Fisher River, and uh, my dad did court all day and he brought me up there and he said, oh, we're just going to go for court and then we're going to drive back down. And and uh, and so he took me up there. But we ended up staying till like 10, 11 p.m. at night because all of these grandmothers brought these grandsons uh, who had been accused of a crime and were been charged. And they wanted him them to my dad to represent them. And my dad met with every single one of them for 20 minutes, an hour. And there was a whole stream of them. We had to turn people away at the end because my he had to get me home to go to bed. Um, and that's the kind of impact the justice system has on the few the few of us that are experienced in it. So whether I write for the free press or whether I'm mm-hmm. teaching students or the justice system directly impacts me. Wow. Like and and so I guess, you know, my before I let you go, that's you know, one of my questions is, you know, we, we all live a warrior life in different ways. And, you know, warrior life doesn't just mean boots on the ground at a protest, but it also means standing up, advocating for and defending our people. And and you do a lot of that. How do you, how do you stay grounded or how do you take care of you when you're working on these things? Because I know me personally, if I write an article on youth suicide in our communities, that's that's like me being, you know, hit by a bus on the inside. And, you know, I find that very difficult. How do you how do you take care of yourself when you're working in all of these really difficult issues? Uh, well, I haven't done a very good job in the past, to be <laughs> honest. And um, I think I am, if anything, a human and I've made mistakes and uh at times uh, haven't been the best father or the best partner or the best son. Um, And so you learn a lot through some of the mistakes that you make and you learn a lot about commitment and, and, you know, presence. And uh, you know, when you make a promise to your daughter, you better deliver it. And uh, part of that is I've realized over the years of how important it is to take time to, um, enjoy the spaces of solemnity and to enjoy the really savor stillness. And uh, that's been a very recent uh, growth for me. And that uh, I will, 
every single day, <laughs> I will enjoy the stillness. And that oftentimes is sitting on the land. Uh, there's a special place in Winnipeg here that I go uh, where I sit uh, with, a, with a group of trees. And I'll travel there and I'll sit there at least three times a week, even if it's minus 40. And uh, I just enjoy the stillness. And that has brought a lot more calmness to me, but it's also got brought me a lot to remember the relationships that I share with all these different parts of creation. And that that's a responsibility. It's not something you take for granted. And I think, um, and I think uh, for many years, I took those things for granted. I took my body for granted, for example, uh, when I got a major injury, I used to uh, I never have to worry about working out. <laughs> and uh, when I had a knee injury about four years ago, I really learned a lot about how limited I am and how when you get older, it's harder to come back from those things. And so uh, taking care of yourself, eating properly, uh, spending time you know, going to the gym, but also enjoying walking uh, and then also taking care of yourself when you travel. I travel so much that uh, it's hard to find those moments of stillness when you travel. But uh, that's the probably the most important time is to find that time when you're when you're in the other day, I, I watched the, um, the trout, which are my relatives, my clan relatives travel up the stream at, uh, when I was giving a workshop to, uh, at Durham district school board out in Ajax, Ontario, and you could watch the trout travel up the stream. And I went down there to my expecting to be there for 10 minutes, but I spent an entire afternoon just sitting watching. <laughs> and that was the, probably the best afternoon I've spent for a while, but that kind of stillness and a relationship with the world around you is the thing that I've learned the most about trying to do this work. Wow. Well, that's, <clears throat> I think that's good advice for our youth too, who are, who now have so many people that are reflected in the media and, you know, on TV and online and, you know, there's things that they might want to emulate, but they should also know that, you know, we actually have to take conscious and purposeful steps to you know if we're going to go into warrior mode we warriors are balanced they have to take care of themselves too and so i appreciate that advice and i know there's a lot of young people that listen to my podcast so i think that's really valuable for them and i really thank you negon for all the work that you do you know i consider you you know not just a you know a warrior uh but i also consider you a good friend and my brother and i care very deeply about um, making sure that you're here for a long time, helping us, you know, in our uh, mission of, of reconciliation. And what I'll do is in the podcast description notes is I'll provide some links to some of your work so that people can read some of the stories that you mentioned. Um, and uh, even to your book that you edited, The Winter We Danced about Idle No More. I mean, there's some really incredible pieces in there. And uh, and I hope that you'll come back and talk about reconciliation in other institutions and a whole bunch of other issues that are in the media. Yeah, miigwech so much for having me on. Um, uh, one thing about UPAM is uh, over the years, I, I know you said at the beginning, I appreciate that you say you look to me for for some opinions. I really, uh, I look to you during when, you know, we didn't know each other during, um, the early days, I don't know more, but the mentorship that you gave to me, uh, when I re really wasn't certain uh, on whether we should do the 
march in this way or whether we should do the event in this way and and what is it that we can say what are the things we can say to media that we have a we have a, a united front and i would often uh watch you on the news and that gave me a real sense of well first you know seeing an indigenous person on the news on the national is was you know i thought well when would i ever see this <laughs> uh, that we weren't you know a criminal we weren't david milgard or, or or someone getting out of the you know misaccused unaccused or um so looking at you in the media and seeing all that work and then getting to know you and the real friendship that you've given to me and the, the kindness that you give and the, also the hard conversations you've given to me over the years uh, <laughs> has been very, very appreciated. And so I say huge miigwech to you and, and miigwech for doing this podcast, I can tell you. I hear about it from everyone and and it's very well well respected and also needed. Oh, well, thank you. That's that's good to hear. I mean, I'm I'm grateful to everyone who tunes into my show and, you know, there's it's it's all about finding different ways to reach our people in the ways that they want to. And so for any of my listeners that are out there, um, you know, please consider my pod, pod, podcast in terms of subscribing it, liking it, sharing the episodes. Um, I'm hosted on SoundCloud, but it's also available on iTunes, Google Play and Stitcher. And, you know, thanks again, Miigwech, um, Negan, for sharing. I hope you come back on. And till next time, keep living a warrior life. Yeah, anytime. Miigwech. Hey, 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 hey.